This is Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gettler. And this is episode 13, and today's date is the 1st of May. And Leon, what's on the schedule for this week? Well, Gary, we're having a fascinating interview with Chris Ridge. He's the Managing Director of Xero, the accounting software group, and he's going to be talking to us all about the opportunities and market ahead for Xero. Yeah, Xero is fascinating, Leon, because uh, as you know, it's uh, had enormous growth. It's uh, becoming a global com- company, having come out of New Zealand. And its activity, of course, is based on bringing small to medium um, and minor corps into uh, the cloud. That's right. It's fascinating and it's revolutionised accounting. And uh, after that, we're going to have a chat with uh, economist Saul Eslake about what he expects from the 2015 budget. Maybe not a lot. And anyway, let's ha- now have a chat with Chris Ridd. Chris, Xero uh, has been going through spectacular growth. Uh, you have uh, 300,000 in your base, don't you? 300, Over 400,000 now globally. Over 400,000 globally. And yes. how many would be in Australia? We're fast approaching 200,000 now. So our last official number was just shy of 160,000, but that was back in late September last year, and we're now growing at a rate of over 300 new customers every business day in Australia alone. So it's yeah, you're right, it's, it's pretty phenomenal growth. And what, what about the US and the UK? I mean, that, that's where you seem to be going through the land grab strategy. Well, yeah, I mean, it's uh, the UK is going very well for us. We just recently ran an event over there with uh, up to about eight, 900 accountants and bookkeepers. So a lot of what we saw, let's say going back two, three years ago in Australia, we're now seeing that momentum come into the UK. The US has been uh, slower, at least we haven't been there as long, uh, but that's starting to pick up as well. Uh, you know, a lot of the same traits that we've seen in markets like New Zealand, Australia are playing out in the UK and of recent times the US as well. Different market over there, but a much bigger market and uh, our brand is starting to build and we're starting to see some great results coming through. So that's exciting. I mean, there's some talk around the traps of you guys listing in the US. Can you elaborate on that? Well, it's it's certainly a logical next step. I mean, we're, we're listed in New Zealand and also on the ASX, so dual listed. You know, we've always felt that the markets we operate in, you know, is an opportunity for us in terms of building our profile to look at listing. And the US is a logical next step. I mean, having got to 100 million in annualised revenue, uh, that usually is a trigger for any software company to look at a, a listing in that part of the world. But, you know, there are some checks and balances internally and externally that we need to work through. Um, and that's what's happening at the moment. So when the timing's right, and provided you know we can tick all the, the appropriate boxes, then certainly that's an option for us to look at listing. What sort of time frame are we talking about here? I don't think we've actually provided any time frame because it's one of those things that you know right now it's it's not something that we deem to be you know super important in terms of some of the things that we're, other things that we're focused on. But if the timing was right, and again if the environment, so the economic climate, but also some of the internal and external checks and balances were in place, then it's something that we'd certainly consider. What's been driving the growth of zero? Well, there's been a couple of things. I think certainly there's a, a broader shift from desktop or on-premise software uh, to being cloud-based, and that's been going on for some years. And, uh, you know, it's particularly given my background coming out of Microsoft after 15 years. For me, back in 2010 was the year that we started to really start to see a lot of traction with cloud computing. A lot of the focus then was in the enterprise and government space, but what we're seeing is a huge push of cloud computing because it's so compelling. The cost savings are enormous if you're moving from 
on-premise software to cloud, it's 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 much cheaper. But I think the important thing is agility, uh, the, ability, the ability to choose applications to be able to subscribe without actually having to go and buy software to manage it and all the complexities with it. So it's a much different way of consuming data and applications that small businesses are finding very attractive. So that's one thing. The other thing for us was really coming into the accounting industry and disrupting, um, providing accounting in the cloud started to change the game with an, uh, an accountant or their advisor being able to work with a client, being able to have visibility of the same data. Uh, and that meant huge efficiency gains in the way that advisors work with clients. So those two trends have really started to drive our growth. You're not the only company of s- slightly similar things so what what's differentiated you because your your growth has been phenomenal really hasn't it but but you've been conducting with a war with myob yeah look we think we we saw an opportunity i mean our roots are in two founders one being a tech tech entrepreneur rod drury and his accountant hamish edwards and they started with a vision that things could be done a lot better and so we were born in the cloud back in 2006 taking an approach which was very unique at the time but it's also about the way we approach software which is you know being really passionate about the design and simplicity. It's always hard when you're an existing player like an MYB or any of the other incumbents that weren't born in the cloud that are trying to take a legacy code base and transition that to cloud. You you can't just flick a switch. This It's a very difficult transition. And what we're seeing is a lot of the incumbents really struggle with that. And also having the passion about building great software. One of the things that we find with our technology and our software is businesses love to use it. And because we focus on design. So we've been compared with Apple, like the Apple of accounting, wow, you know, what a, what a great accolade for us. But, but what it says is that we focus on the user experience and that's unique in accounting because accounting can be boring and what we've done is make, make it fun. And you're dealing with people who could do with a bit of fun and they're not really very au fait with the numbers and the balance sheets and the rest, are they? You're talking about small business or accounting? Yeah, small business, really. Yeah, look, you know, what's happened is that accounting has become a, um, every business needs to do it. Um, there's a huge compliance requirement to do it. And I think the industry has made it hard and made it difficult and so it's become a painful process and what we've done you're right I mean we've tried to approach accounting in a very unique and different way which is if we can make it fun delightful experience and we get incredible advocacy and feedback about using our software and that's a game changer and that's what small businesses want you know they don't want to be having to go into the factory or the office on a weekend and do their books they want to be able to stand in the queue of an airport with their iPhone and send an invoice to a customer which is what they can do using That's your, right. your software. That's right. Being in the cloud means access to your data anywhere, anytime, on any device. And that's a game changer. That means, you know, we're mobile. Any business owner will tell you that they're on the road. They want to be mobile. They don't want to have to be stuck to a desktop computer and having to manage the compliance in their business. Make it easy. And sending the invoice is just one thing, but it all goes back in through the cloud so that when they get back to the office, everything is done pretty well. Well, look, you know, the beauty of being in the cloud is that you can automate the workflow of business. So when you send that invoice, of course, you can have a pay now button, which can connect to a payment gateway. So when the customer receives that, click the pay now button and they can pay online. So a lot of what we've done is really think through the workflow of small business. And in that scenario, it's about getting paid quicker. And so we all know that cash flow is important for a business owner. So if you can actually create workflows using the cloud that enable business owners to collect money quicker, to be able to invoice faster, they're going to be more successful, they're less likely to fail. Tell me, what will this do for the accounting profession? I mean, that uh, the accounting profession is facing major challenges from uh, outfits such as yours. How do you see it? 
Yeah, well, we're very optimistic about the accounting profession. I think mean, you, you'll hear a lot of people, uh, particularly recent times, talk about compliance and the fact that, you know, we've disrupted and, you know, we're automating a lot of these tasks. And yes, we are. But what we're saying is that we've, we're huge fans of the accounting and the bookkeeping industries. Um, they play a vital role. And what we want to do is actually take away the administrative workload and give them back time to provide what they got into business to do, which is provide advice. So rather than spending time on data entry, spending time on compliance tasks, we want to turn that around and say, We'll give you back that time. Let software automate those processes. And we want you as an accountant bookkeeper to provide advice to your clients. So, you know, how do you improve cash flow? How do I create better profitability for you? How can we invest money? How can we uh, provide, you know, greater return on assets and those sorts of things? And that's, that's why, quite frankly, advisors got into the business of advice. They didn't get into the business of advice to fill out tax returns and, you know, business activity statements. So let the software automate those tasks We'll give you back time to be better advisors and that's good for business. How have accountants taken? Well, look, you know, the early adopters and you always, in any technology adoption cycle, you'll have your innovators and early adopters that embrace it and, you know, fall head over heels in love with it. Um, and then you have the early majority and the late majority in laggards. And so I think we're in a phase now where we're coming well into the early majority. So, you know, we're in an event today where you've got 40, 50% of our audience uh, seeing zero for the first time. These are probably your more conservative accountants and bookkeepers that understand the world's changing, you know, that cloud is here and it's not going to go away. And so what they want is advice on how they can make that transition. And that's what we're here to do today to really try and help them on that journey. It's not just about the technology. It's about how do you change your business processes to take advantage and actually thrive in this disruption rather than seeing it as a threat. But that would mean surely that the accountant has to change their whole business model for their own practice as well. Yeah, look, potentially, and, and, and I think what we're trying to do is break it down into stages. You know, there's not a flick the switch and suddenly I'm, I'm operating efficiently in the cloud. You've got to actually look at it in terms of phases, and that's what we're trying to do is actually be, you know, quite deliberate in how they can start to make that transition. So what's next? Well, I think continued innovation. Uh, you know, one of the things that we're about is not keeping still. Uh, we've never considered the product done, even though we're starting to get to the final stages of what I would call equivalency with a cloud product providing all the accounting functions that our partners and businesses want. But, um, you know, we, we constantly find ways of doing things better and we're trying to build those into the way that we're uh, evolving the product. And we're also providing great tools for the accountants and bookkeepers. So, you know, we've just announced at this roadshow that we're on today, some of the changes with our practice tools, the fact that we're delivering online tax for the Australian market, which means that they can lodge electronically with the ATO via standard business reporting. So that's going to create huge productivity gains for advisors. And, uh, you know, you can just continue to see a whole wall of innovation around client software for the small business and also tools for the advisor. So it looks very promising. Oh, look, we're hugely optimistic. Cloud's not slowing down. Um, you know, we continue to grow our business. Uh, as I said, with the sort of rate of growth we're seeing, uh, we think that we can have a substantial impact on the small business economy, which represents 42% of GDP. So this has got a big positive play in terms of economic growth for Australia and certainly taking that globally as well. So talking growth, where do you go next? Your UK, US, ANZ, there's that whole bit of Asia up there. Are you thinking of going in there? Yeah, we are. Look, you know, there's a there's a big global opportunity for us and we're not restricted by any sort of geographic uh, limitations. Um, and it's about, I mean, we're still early days in some of those English-speaking geographies. Uh, we are looking at other locations. But, you know, being in the cloud, we actually service customers from 150 countries around the globe today. Uh, we just choose to operate in four of those geographies, but we are looking at where do we go next? and that could be in a number of different locations. There's huge markets in small business across a number of geographies and our aim is to become a global you know, leader in a lot of those markets. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Chris.
So what do you think, Leon? That was pretty interesting. I thought it was, and it's, it's interesting how it's, uh, it's came out of nowhere, and it's just revolutionised everything. So now to Saul Eslake and uh, the outlook for this budget, which has been some time coming. Saul Eslake, what's your view about the upcoming budget? What, do, what can we expect? Well, as the Prime Minister has said, the budget is likely to be a dull and boring one compared with last year's effort. That largely reflects the government's recognition of how difficult it has turned out to be to undertake major fiscal reforms, particularly those involving reductions in government spending in the face of almost implacable opposition not only from the Labour Party and the Greens where they might have expected it, but as Joe Hockey has recently admitted from the array of crossbenchers whom this time last year the government had assumed would support most of the things the government was seeking to do. Complicating the picture in the lead up to the budget is the ongoing deterioration in the revenue side as a result of in particular falling commodity prices, but also slow wage and employment growth, which cuts away at personal income tax collections as well as company tax collections. And the government has to consider here whether to seek to offset the impact of further downward revisions to revenue on its ability to project a budget surplus at some point in the foreseeable future, knowing that to do that by further cutting spending or increasing revenue in other ways could actually detract from an economic growth rate that's below trend. Wisely, I think, Joe Hockey has decided that the budget will absorb those revenue losses in much the same way as Wayne Swan abandoned his commitment to return the budget to surplus by the end of the last Labour government's term in office in the face of a similar deterioration in revenues. But that still leaves very much in question the longer-term task which successive Treasury heads and the Governor of the Reserve Bank have identified of bringing into better alignment what Australians expect governments to spend on them by way of services and benefits and what Australians are willing to pay by way of taxes in order that those expectations be met in a financially sustainable way. Now, Joe Hockey has backed away from bringing in a surplus or reducing the deficit in any foreseeable way in the near future. Just by the change in his language, he's not using dollar figures anymore for a start. I mean, where do you see that happening? Where do you see, what do you see happening with that? Well, I think the probability of the budget returning to surplus within, say, the the next two parliamentary terms or uh, between now and the end of the decade is receding very rapidly almost to zero. And as I say there's a genuine policy dilemma here for the government. Uh, it is important over the longer term to improve Australia's fiscal position partly in order to strengthen our capacity to cope with the impact that an ageing population will have on the government's fiscal position partly because we do need to restock our capacity to respond to any kind of external shock in the way that we have done in the past, especially having regard to the fact that we probably won't be able to reduce interest rates as much as we did during the financial crisis or in the recession of the early 90s, given how low interest rates actually are today. Already, the absolute level of the Reserve Bank's official cash rate, two and a quarter percent, is a percentage point smaller than the margin by which the Reserve Bank reduced its official cash rate during the financial crisis of 2008-2009. So if another 
financial or other economic shock were to hit us at some point in the foreseeable future, monetary policy couldn't play nearly as big a role as it did then. And the way things stand at the moment, nor could fiscal policy. So we would be much more exposed. Having said that, raising taxes or cutting government spending in a discretionary fashion does ordinarily detract from economic growth. And you wouldn't want to be doing that at a time when, as at the present, the rate of growth is significantly below trend and although this may be close to changing the unemployment rate has been trending upwards for the last three years so as i say i think the government's making the right decision on economic grounds not to cut or not to seek to cut spending as aggressively as it did last year and to eschew tax increases but it still really does need to come to grips with the longer term problem that the budget has to face. And that probably means it needs to improve its communication around these issues, not only in the forthcoming budget, but in the rundown to the election, to which we are now closer than we were to the election of 2013. Now, the the issue, though, too, is, I mean, what are we expecting in the budget? There's been reports today of an overhaul of the pharmaceutical benefits scheme. There's talk of family measures in the budget. Uh, what, what do you see happening in the budget? Well, it would seem that the two things the government wants people to focus on are changes to the way family assistance is delivered, consolidating a number of programs that assist families with the cost of childcare, possibly making them more generous for low-income families and perhaps making them less generous for high-income families as a replacement for the Prime Minister's now-abandoned paid parental leave scheme. And the second centrepiece of the budget is likely to be a one-and-a-half percentage point reduction in the company tax rate for small businesses, possibly accompanied by some other measures to assist small businesses which are not incorporated and which thus don't benefit from a reduction reduction in the corporate income tax rate, things like accelerated depreciation or instant write-off for relatively small uh, business investment decisions and the like could be something else the government would portray as a goodie in the package. There are likely to be some tax measures, including the 0.05% tax on bank deposit, previously proposed by the Labor government in its last budget to fund a financial claims scheme, but which, uh, helpfully from the government's point of view, also counts towards reducing the deficit and public debt given the accounting practices that the budget's subject to. It's not impossible that there should, could be some changes to the tax treatment of superannuation, although I doubt the government has any appetite for going all the way suggested by Chris Bowen in the past week. And there could also be some measures designed to raise more tax from multinational companies along the lines flagged by the UK government earlier this year to which Joe Hockey has lent some support. There won't be much by way of expenditure savings, although the government has flagged in the past week some possible changes to the number of drugs that are listed on the pharmaceutical benefits scheme with a view to making the safety net provisions more effective and Perhaps there'll be more measures that will be leaked between now and the budget, as is traditionally the case these days. So we're not looking at a whole lot of cuts here, are we? No, I don't think we are. And as I say, that's largely for political reasons. We are closer to the 2016 election now than we are to the 2013 election. The government has 
spent a lot of political capital for very little result as a result of uh, having reached very far in last year's budget but failed to persuade either a majority of senators or indeed the public at large that what they were seeking to do was both justified and fair. So this, in a sense, represents an attempt to have another go in a different way and perhaps putting off some of the more difficult problems to the second or even third term of office if they get a second or third term. So we could expect then a lot of the necessary measures will be part of an election campaign in 2016. Or possibly not even surface in that context, and that's the longer-term concern. As I say, I think the government is, on economic policy grounds, making the right decision in not seeking aggressively to cut spending or increase revenue in the short term because of the current state of the economy. But there is still the very important longer-term question of putting the budget on a more sustainable footing, which hasn't been done as a result of last year's budget, even though last year's budget tried, because so many of the more important decisions in last year's budget either failed to get through the Senate or the government has since walked away from it. That doesn't mean to say the problem has gone away. It's still very much there. It doesn't require tackling in the next 12 months, but it will certainly require tackling at some point over the remainder of the decade. And which means it will have to come up again. I'm sure it will, and you would prefer that it doesn't happen during more dire economic circumstances than we're likely to face over the next 12 months, although perhaps one could say that Australian political history says that it's only in the event of a crisis that there is sufficient political will to take what are undoubtedly politically difficult decisions. Saul Leslie, thank you very much for your time. And that's a pleasure. Thanks for having me again. So, Leon, how do you see that? Well, yes, uh, it, it says that uh, we can expect, well, we can't expect any harsh measures in this budget, but uh, as Saul says, there's long-term structural issues that they have still have to address. Yeah, and uh, revenue is a big problem, even though the um, iron ore prices and whatnot are up a bit and the dollar's gaining a bit of ground. That's right, that's right. But it's still a pretty grim outlook, I think. Yes, it is. Okay, now the news. Gary, first to the negotiations with Greece, and according to a newspaper, a Greek newspaper, Tovima, they ran a poll and it found that 7 out of 10 Greeks want their leaders to reach an agreement with their creditors as this tense debt drama drags on. And just more than 23% of Greeks back splitting from the European Union, while slightly under 72% said they support an agreement with creditors when asked what would be the best solutions for the country. So a lot of them wanted to go back to the drachma. Yeah, <laughs> and um, the, the issue is that Greece has been trying to negotiate this deal that would unlock 7.2 billion euro or 10, 10 billion Aussie from the remaining EU international monetary fund bailout funds that Greece needs to avoid, avoid default and a possible exit from the euro. It's it's quite extraordinary. Going back to the drachma, of course, would be a, attractive for a lot of people. I mean, for example, you could, we could probably get a holiday on the Greek islands for about 10 bucks. That's right, that's right. But, uh, but the issue is the Greeks are less supportive of their leaders' confrontational stance in negotiating with their creditors, which is why I think Greece has shuffled the team involved in the bailout talks with the international creditors. And it's reduced the influence that outspoken Greek finance minister Yanis Varoufakis has on the slow-moving negotiations. Yeah, he was he was getting pretty grumpy, and, and uh, 
confrontation. Well, it only comes days after the Eurozone finance chief piled pressure on Greece and Mr Varoufakis to speed up the talks if it wants to seal a new financing deal. Now, so Greece's alternate foreign minister, Euclid Sakolatis, will head a new policy negotiating team, while the finance minister's chief economist, Georgios Herilakis will lead talks in Brussels with the heads of countries' international creditors, and both are seen to be close allies of Greek Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras. So watch this space, Gary. Yeah, and, and it's pretty gloomy, that space right now. Now, US consumers grew decidedly less confident about the economy in April, seeing little to suggest growth is going to pick up in the coming months, according to the conference board. And the research firm's Consumer Confidence Index fell 95.2 in April. That's down from 101.4. That's the lowest reading since December, and the US economy actually stalled in the first quarter this year, it expanded an annual pace of just 0.2%, which suggests that it's actually ground to a halt. And of course, one of the other worrying factors for us is that uh, confidence is down in China in the middle class. That's right. So it's not good. Meanwhile, in Australia, consumer confidence has rebounded last week, largely due to continuing strength in the housing market and optimism about the upcoming federal budget. Confidence rose 2.8% in the week ending April 26, according to the ANZ Roy Morgan's Consumer Confidence Barometer. But Despite the pickup, the survey indicated confidence remained below average and was trending down. Meanwhile, Gary, the Abbott government is being urged to target family homes of pensioners for budget savings and use reverse mortgages to boost retirees' income. Now, I think all of this is politically untenable, taking on pensioners. But anyway, the Centre for Independent Studies argues it's unfair that rich and poor are treated the same, and it claims its controversial proposals will leave an overwhelming majority of pensioners better off because of the reverse mortgages. And they say the $42 billion spending on age pension scheme will rise to nearly $50 billion by 2017-18, and its cost has increased by 35% between 2007-08 and 2014 due to the fact that 70% of retirees receive some form of pension. Now, under its proposal, the family home will be included in the assets test for age pension eligibility, and seniors will be encouraged to unlock the value of their property and use it to support themselves in retirement with reverse mortgages, which will generate $14 billion in annual savings. It's not a new idea. I mean, reverse mortgages have been available for the major banks for all couple of decades. Meanwhile, we can expect to see in the budget a radical overhaul of the pharmaceutical benefits scheme, and it's going to contribute about $3 billion of savings to a total healthcare target of $7 billion in this year's budget. It's going to expose pharmacists to competition. Now, what the federal government's looking at is removing subsidies from several over-the-counter medicines and allowing pharmacies to discount the co-payment patients pay on pharmaceuticals. So some can charge less than what they're getting now. Some can charge at cost, and it's actually going to drive some pharmacists out of business. And on top of that, you've got the supermarket chains thinking of getting into the pharmaceutical. Well, business. with the Harper report, yes, they're yeah. looking at doing that. In effect, but in effect, what the government is doing is deregulating the pharmacy profit margins. Meanwhile, seniors have a blunt message for the federal government: Leave savers alone. The over fifties lobby group, National Seniors Australia, has joined the opposition to a bank deposits tax, and it says people who save are an easy target for governments. And the tax, which is a zero point zero five levy on deposits of up to two hundred fifty thousand, which was first proposed by Labor is expected to be unveiled in the May 12 budget and it's going to raise about $500 million a year. But National Seniors Chief Executive Michael O'Neill says it doesn't make sense to tax people who save money when all the commentary is about drawing dead down debt. It, it would be a huge political lump for uh, the coalition. That's right, that's right. Meanwhile, the budget is expected to include all these tax and welfare integrity measures. Welfare chiefs will be targeted in a new program to cut the nation's social security bill, while global companies will face tighter laws on shifting profits to foreign tax savings and fighting back 
Packard attacks on last year's unpopular spending cuts, the federal government will use the integrity measures to assure voters that its second budget not only passes a fairness test, but also prevents some taxpayers from shirking their obligations. And sharpening the political context over tax avoidance, Joe, Treasurer Joe Hockey and his cabinet colleagues are drafting DAC tax changes to complement global action against profit shifting by companies like Google and Apple. Possibly get the government a bit more revenue, but going to be terribly difficult to administer. Now, Officeworks, Gary, is actually going into competition with Australia Post. The chain's national network of stores has launched a new parcel delivery service teaming up with courier company Fastway, and it's targeted the parcels delivery business, which is booming for Australia Post. Because while Australia Post has been struggling financially because of formalling letter volumes, Parcel's delivery business is growing 4% a year because of uh, more businesses selling products online. So Officeworks offering is called Mailman. It's going to deliver cheaper parcels weighing less than 10 kilograms. And Gary, it's significant because Office is par- Officeworks is part of the West Farmers Group. And of course, if it's successful, West Farmers could roll it out into other businesses like Coles, Bunnings, Target and Kmart. Yeah, so it's a pretty big animal that's uh, just suddenly appeared. Now, Oz Minerals is under formal investigation over foreign bribery claims after the Australian Federal Police stepped up a two-year examination of a 2009 Cambodian gold exploration buyout of partners with reported ties to the mining industry. Now, the AFP reopened the previously dismissed case in January 13, 2013 after addressing down from the Organisation for Economic Cooperation cooperation and development for not enforcing foreign bribery laws stringently enough and it now appears the AFP believes Oz may have a case to answer and the company hasn't taken a provision on the matter in its accounts and it's always denied allegations of inappropriate business practices. So watch that space, Gary. Now, the other interesting part is that iron ore prices are up off the floor. They've risen to nearly $60 a tonne, and they're now trading at $59.20 a tonne. That's up 3% from their $57 a tonne mark, and they've moved to a six-week high. They're up nearly 27% from their 10-year low of $46.70 that was sitting on earlier this month. It's still low compared with the $100 plus that we were getting. but it's- Mind you, a lot of, a lot of it's um, not to do with iron ore being more attractive. A lot of it coincides with rising oil prices, mm. which uh, increases costs for iron ore producers, which are passed on into the price. And also coincides with reports the Chinese government is now trying to stimulate growth by um, stimulating lending, which is which would be welcome news for struggling miners here in Australia. But the big question, Gary, is whether the current recovery it can extend much further because you've got a whole new supply wave and that's threatening to exacerbate an oversupply problem. Well, China's already got iron ore mountains all over the place. That's right. And BHP and Rio are stepping up their production. Yeah, that's so, right. Meanwhile, M2 Group has made a competing takeover proposal for IINet. That puts pressure on rival TPG Telecom to raise its offer. M2 values, values its proposal at about $10 per IINet share compared with TG, TPG's $8.60 a share proposal. And under the proposal, IINet shareholders would receive 803 M2 shares plus a $0.75 cent special dividend in exchange for each IINet share. And M2 also includes $1.37 in synergies in its valuation of the offer. TPG's takeover bid was $1.4 billion. M2's offer is 1.6, and shareholders are uh, resisting it. Uh, founder and former chief executive Ionet Michael Malone has endorsed the bid, saying the merger would form a better cultural fit than a potential tie-up with budget broadband relative to Telecom. And the Ionet board is meeting today, so they're going to have to decide. That's right, and TPG then has, what, about three days left, maybe by Tuesday next week? Three days, three days to come up with a better deal. 
Their, their deal, their offer, of course, is all cash, whereas the M2 one includes cash and paper. And that's it for this week, Gary. Great, Leon. That's good. And uh, we'll be back next week. And uh, next week, we've got a terrific interview with uh, Taichi Hoshino, the CEO of Monetize. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's going to be really, really interesting because it's something sort of coming in out of left field. Anyway, in the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. In the meantime, stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.